We rarely know what lies beneath the sexy, filtered version of life that we see online. So we're lifting the lid and having the conversations about money that no one else is having. So settle in, grab yourself a coffee and come join the conversation. What are you looking for in a romantic relationship? Lots of us, whether we admit it or not, are looking for a successful partner. And by success, we often mean financial success. This episode, we sit down with one of our favourite guests and my best friend, Louise Rumble. Louise is the founder of Open House Podcast, where she explores therapy, relationships, dating and much more. We ask Louise why so many of us seek out financial stability in a partner, why rich kids often find themselves dealing with emotional neglect, and how this can manifest in our adult lives. For anyone who has ever questioned their dating choices, why they find themselves chasing financial success, or how their relationship with their parents has impacted their own lives, this is well worth a listen. Louise, it's so fab to have you back, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about success and why it is that society essentially tells us that money equals success. And specifically, I wanted to start with looking at money and relationships, because I know this is something that you do a huge amount of work on. And I'd love to know why you think it is that when we're dating or looking for a partner, so many of us are attracted to successful partners. And by that, what we're really meaning is financially successful. Yes. So I think one of the most interesting things that I learned in therapy was that if you are attracted to a partner who is categorically rich, if one of those things is wealth or status, it actually goes a lot deeper. And what that is, is that we often have a need for safety that we perhaps do not feel that we can provide to ourselves or that we can generate both within ourselves, so emotional safety, and around ourselves if we don't believe in our capability to make the right amount of money that we need. So often we look to a wealthy partner as someone that can provide that safety for us, but without the emotional awareness and I guess the emotional intelligence around that connection, many of us can go through life thinking, oh, I just want to date a rich man without ever actually realizing that it goes deeper. And of course, you know, there's also the obvious, like if you date a rich person, you will get to do really fun things in life. Like we're not going (laughs) to, we're not going to pretend that dating a rich Mm -hmm. man or a rich woman, right. (laughs) Is not going to bring us big engagement rings, holidays, yachts, boats, you know, even just like a little shopping trip here and there. It doesn't have to be like mega wealth. It can just add dopamine hits to our life. Um, but I think that that is a whole nother part of it, which I won't go into now, otherwise I'll go off on a big tangent, but yeah, the need for safety, um, and also the need for, I guess, external excitement are two of the kind of key parts to start. I think that's really interesting. And I totally get the kind of dopamine hit, great holidays, lovely home, just extravagant things, amazing experiences. I'm sure that absolutely all of us are susceptible to that. But the sort of need for safety, and yet clearly this is a very widespread thing, but do you have any idea of where that comes from? What is 
kind of typically going to lead a person to believe that they are unable to provide for themselves, keep themselves safe. When is a person likely to seek that from a partner? Yes, definitely. So I got a story. I always like to put things into context. I think it's much easier for people to understand than always just the theory. Um, And I have a very good friend of mine and she lives in the States. And during her childhood, her family went through some financial struggles. So it was not a case of um, sort of being born into a low-income family where this was always going to be the case. It was more born into a um, essentially privileged family, I would say, and then going through financial hardships and that being taken away. So it became a very stressful situation where they all had to change schools. There was a huge amount of upheaval. And then my friend's um, baby sister had her car impounded in the parking lot by the bailiffs, which is obviously such, I mean, high school is like the most traumatic experience for many people as it is, let alone with something like that happening. So my friend was telling me that she's always grown up with her mom saying, you must pick a man that can provide for you. You must pick a man that can provide for you. And she never really thought about that until she's been dating recently. She's in her thirties, the same as me. So we're getting to a point now where we're becoming a lot more aware of the dating decisions that we are making. And every time she met a potential partner, it was always a question that she had to ask herself is what's his job and how much money does he make? Now, and Ellie has gone through all of this with me as one of my closest friends that I have dated someone who is on the total opposite end of the spectrum that has had next to no money at all. So I would say to my friend that, you know, you can have a deeply transformative and beautiful relationship without money being involved. Of course, that will bring its challenges too. But, you know, is there a reason that you're letting this block you from dating someone that isn't making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds a year? And that was the first time when she realized that the conditioning from her mother and from her childhood experience was that she needed that stable rock next to her should something financially happen. And she's a very high flying, very successful um, woman over in LA. So it's not even like she needs it in this present moment. It's just that conditioning from childhood is like that, that danger, fear, threat. Talking about childhood there, I want to dig a little bit into that. And it's something that you've talked about loads on the podcast, the impact really, I guess, that childhood has on our relationships as adults. So from your experience and the conversations that you've had, how have you seen this manifest itself? You know, what kind of patterns are there that show up time and time again from our childhood then that affect us as adults? Oh, yeah, I could talk about this for hours, so I'll try and keep it brief. But one of the things that I'm most fascinated by is how, as a society today, I think a lot of our parents' generation um, were limited emotionally, and we don't hold that against them because they were doing most of the time the best that they could do with what they had. But I don't know about you, but if you, a lot of people think back to their childhood, they maybe don't have active recollections of being told that you are so lovable and worthy just the way you are. It doesn't matter how you do in your school results. It doesn't matter if you get into the A team for netball or the C team for netball. Like you are just, just, we love you so much just the way you are. And without those active conversations and that active like nurturing of our brain and and wiring for us to understand 
understand that we're so lovable, irrespective of what happens outside of us. We end up as children putting um, validation on things outside of us. So external metrics, and um, that can happen whether you have a pushy parent or not. You know, it can be very bad for some people that were highly pressurized into getting good grades. But even if you didn't have that direct pressure, I think particularly, I think it's a gendered thing as well. I think that there's a lot of pressure on females um, to succeed in their exams and to do well. You know, you look at the boys and again, without generalizing, a lot of guys just rock up to the exam, haven't read their notes, like just wing it. Whereas, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I remember like having full blown mental breakdowns about my GCSEs because like I needed more time. And so already at that point in my life, I was like so convinced that if I didn't get straight A's, A stars, whatever it was back then, that I was a failure. Um, So yeah, it just comes back to this concept of without um, the emotional regulation and, and tools that we're taught internally, we look externally for metrics of validation. Once those are set in childhood, we then just grow into adults that are still looking outwards and still looking at what our job looks like, what our bank balance looks like, what our waistline looks like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's so interesting. And actually what you've just made me think is, yes, that was exactly my experience as well. When I was at school, GCSEs having absolute meltdowns, whereas guys were just kind of rocking up. And I remember the narrative at school always being like, girls are more conscientious than boys. And I sort of, it was almost taken as given to me that it's kind of some genetic thing in our DNA, like the way we're wired. But what you've just made me think is, I wonder if that's really much more to do with kind of social and environmental programming that the girls experience compared to boys. Um, But I'm also really interested in what you were saying about kind of how our parents were not particularly well equipped um, emotionally. And one thing we know for sure is that people who grew up in families where there was no money around, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that that involves a great deal of suffering. But I'm really interested to talk about the problems that come with um, people who were raised in really wealthy families, because I feel that that is where emotional neglect can often be present. And it's something, like I say, it's very, very well known that you've had a terrible time if you've grown up with no money in a poor family. But it it feels very unacceptable and just not talked about that you might experience some issues in childhood and later on in adulthood if you've grown up in a a wealthy and rich family. And I'd love to know what kind of problems that comes with. So this is something that I'm fascinated with because they have, or researchers have directly connected these adverse childhood events as being tied to about a 70% increase in physical health conditions further down the line particularly um, autoimmune disorders, but mainly like IBS is like a huge one. And so emotional neglect, when we think of that word, we think of um, the poor baby being sat in the corner, that the mum leaves it for four days to go partying. You know, of course, and that's just the most horrendous thing. And of course, that is, well, that is also physical neglect as well. Emotional neglect is more that in those moments when you needed an emotional support or someone to hold space for you physically or emotional, emotionally, that individual was not there for you. And now tying this back to your question, I think that one of the biggest challenges for the wealthy is that often, again, without generalizing, there is less face-to-face time from the parents with the child 
particularly in the first seven years of our life, which is when we are shaped. That's when we're functioning in in delta waves, which means we absorb everything around us. Now, this emotional neglect, if you do not feel that there is someone there to hold space for your emotions, you grow up into being an adult that feels like you were not lovable enough for your parents to stay around. You were not lovable enough because they chose work over you. You were not lovable enough because of X, Y, Z. And then what we see is a lot of um, troubled teenagers who either maybe spent more time with their nannies or spent more time at boarding school. And then they basically are carrying this inherent belief that they are not lovable and worthy, which then, again, without generalizing, often manifests into substance abuse issues, the wild party animal because you're craving attention from anyone just to say, I love you. It's okay. I see you. Like, it's okay. Um, So, yeah, I think that emotional neglect is a big big part of the challenge that children of very wealthy parents um, can experience. I'm fascinated by this. And I mean, you mentioned it there and I was going to ask about it anyway, but what this makes me think of is particularly boarding school. And I always remember a friend that said to me, kind of maybe 10 years ago or so, she had a very successful mum and was brought up by nannies for most of her childhood and her mum you know worked super hard is very senior in a very like massive global company but she just said to me once that she just wished that her mum had actually been around more and that she'd had less presence and I just wonder you know what are your views knowing what you know and having done the research that you have done on boarding school as a concept and obviously there's going to be exceptions but like as a general super interesting question so just to caveat I have no research on this I don't know anything um you know science backed but my own personal opinion which I feel I'm well um equipped to share because I went to boarding school myself is that I actually had a very, very positive experience at boarding school. I loved it. It felt like I was like just living, having sleepovers with my best friends every single day. So my experience was very positive. But at the same time, my parents then moved to South Africa. And I think that I experienced a great deal of resentment about my parents leaving me that I never explicitly acknowledged at the time because I was just at boarding school and, you know, just getting my driver's license and having my first boyfriend. So I wasn't really sitting with the emotions of the, of the abandonment that I felt. So for me, emotionally, I didn't feel like it impacted me. But again, I'll also caveat that I went home on the weekends and I lived just down the road. So it wasn't the traditional boarding school experience like my poor father, who was shipped off to boarding school at the age of eight and didn't come home for three months at a time. And then sadly, when my father's, so when my grandfather passed away, my father was not told about that until he came home for the summer holidays because they didn't want to interrupt his flow at school. And, you know, yeah, I can see we're all a bit like upset by that. And, you know, it's a very deeply upsetting situation, but as what is even more deeply upsetting is that my father, and I love him dearly, 
is a very emotionally limited man. He went through a lot of trauma at a young age. He then proceeded to be an incredibly successful businessman, which meant, like we've discussed, he often wasn't around much. And, you know, one of the saddest things that I have, and I really hope my father will never listen to any of these podcasts because I feel like I keep repeating the same thing like often, which is that I, I don't have a memory of my father hugging me. Like I don't have a memory. I don't, I don't have a memory of a, a, an intimately affectionate moment with my father. Now that's not to say that we don't have them now as adulthoods, but I mean in adulthood, but they make me feel uncomfortable because it wasn't something I was used to. But the situation that he went through limited him so much in terms of how to deal with his emotions because he suppressed everything. He suppressed everything and he didn't communicate it outwards. So I would say that I think one of the big risks with boarding school is that you are not being taught how to nurture and regulate your own emotional bandwidth. It's not like they give you classes on what to do when you're sad and what to do when you're angry, which we're all laughing about, but we need more than how to do algebra or like the history from like the Vikings, you know? So I think that there is a big risk that being taken out of a, of a loving family unit can definitely sort of impact the way that we learn to regulate ourselves emotionally. For sure. I mean, that makes complete, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. And you can imagine, I mean, the reality is that most kids that attend boarding school are coming from wealthy families and wealthy backgrounds. And you can imagine that therefore it is likely or yeah, it is more likely maybe that emotional neglect is going to appear amongst the wealthy. And there's, you know, I can think of so many other reasons, like you say, spending a lot of time with nannies rather than your own parents as a kid or, you know, wealthy families. It might be that you have one or both parents working a lot of the time. Um, and I, I actually think another one is that probably if a child's upset, it's a very, very easy to just think, well, I'll just buy them a toy and it'll make them better or you know whatever it is that they they want and it's not it's really the love they want so I can really see how that happens and I I this also really resonates with me and I find it a really fascinating topic as well but I I personally find it just so difficult to it's it's like something I feel that I cannot talk about it almost feels really shameful because I feel that the response would be oh you know poor little rich girl Mm -hmm. um and I'd love to know like is this something that you have talked about openly on your podcast because it sounds like it is and if so you know what has the response been has it been absolute backlash or have you found like a really warm response and a lot of people saying you know yeah I've experienced this too yeah so I think this is one of the reasons why I started my podcast was that from the outside everyone would always be like oh your life's so perfect blah 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 but actually it was like on the inside behind closed doors, I was just always going through something that was like deeply distressing or I was being driven to do things. And I was living life in a way because I never felt good enough. So I was like, if I just make more money, if I just make my business do this, if I just look like this in the gym, if I just go to these places, then either my dad will be proud of me or my people around me will respect me. And in schema therapy, this is actually something called counterattack. So we basically counterattack against the feeling that we are not good enough. And so if you come into contact with people who are workaholics or can never stop or are, you know, always in the gym, always pushing themselves so hard, 
often actually comes from this place of counterattack because those individuals, and again, I feel I can talk about this because this was me and, and still is, it's still traits that I fight all the time, even though I'm a million times better now. Those individuals do not feel that without those achievements, without the money, without the status, without the body, that they are really worthy or, or, or coming to anything. So yeah, for me, the podcast was less of me saying poor little rich girl and more of me saying, this is how my limitations in life show up. These are the challenges that I deal with. And this is where they stemmed from, you know, from childhood. Um, and actually, if anything, a lot more of my problems were caused by my um, parents, like lack of emotional stability or availability versus growing up in a family with money. And I'd love to talk to you guys another time about money trauma, because um, it's, yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say on that, but yeah, there's not been any backlash. I think that when you deal with things gently and compassionately, people are open to discussing. And I think we're in a stage now in life where people are more aware that you don't have to have gone through a major trauma for it to have greatly um, shaped who you are as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you talk there about counterattack, but then the other thing that I've heard you mention as well is first sibling pressure and this is something that I guess I feel like I've heard talked about vaguely but can you kind of explain a bit more what that is and how that can manifest itself as well yes so family dynamics are really really fascinating and there is definitely a expectation generally across the board that there is more pressure put on the first child. So that is because often the parents are in quite a neurotic state when the baby arrives. Okay. Admittedly. So it's your first child. You haven't got a clue what you're doing at any second. You think something bad's going to happen or something good. And even in the beautiful moments, like, Oh, look, their first laugh, for example, all of the stimuli and the response is like very intense where, uh, so, so, in terms of how that impacts the nervous system is it can start to build quite a hypersensitive nervous system. And then that can sort of tie into feeling things intensely or getting emotionally dysregulated. And I also think that there's more of a pressure on the first child because it's like, okay, you're going to be our superstar. Like you're doing so good. Like you're so perfect. Oh, look at our little angel or our little son. Then the second child comes along and you're using the clothes from the first child and the toys from the first child. And the first child kind of, you know, can play with the second child and everything's just like a little bit more relaxed. So I definitely do think that in terms of um, childhood dynamics, you definitely see the first child or the only child feeling a pressure to be a certain way. Whereas I do think that the second sibling um, or the middle sibling definitely avoids that pressure. And then I also think that the younger sibling is known to be the one that sort of gets away with everything and anything and often like little princess or little prince syndrome um but yeah I am the eldest sibling so I don't think anyone is surprised that you know what we were talking about about all of the grades and stuff that it was sort of came with being part and parcel of being that first child on that kind of note about feeling that but you know you really have obviously felt that pressure and or I think any of us in our generation have been exposed to this real pressure to be successful. And I'd love to know, given all the work you've done, have you now come to a, have you got a sense of where your 
definition of success obviously it, it sounds like from talking to you it's money it's having the body whatever um have you got an idea of where your definition of success has come from um, uh, and whether it's something that we are you know if we do have an unhelpful definition of success is it something you think we can change in adulthood yes great question so my definition of success was always based on external metrics And then when I started going to therapy, I started to understand that you need to be able to connect inwards with your sense of self to be able to define a different version of success. Now, some people will be listening to this thinking, I don't want to build a different version of success. I like the way I am and I like the way that my life is. And if that is you, then that is okay. You know, we're not saying that this has to change, but for many people whose external validation is their metric of success, it really can start to impact your relationships because you work all the time or because you're never available for social functions or you're always on the phone because you're working all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it came back to the concept of understanding that um, my version of success was focused on doing and I needed to learn to be and focus on being. And now since I've done that and I've started to look internally and work out what traits in me that I want the world to know about and what I want to be known for and which friends I want to nurture, that was the foundation, was like getting the foundations in place. And then now I just don't have that focus on the money or the body that I used to. And I'm absolutely happy with making 50% of the salary that I did before, because it means that I can go and spend quality time either in the day or at nighttime with people I love. And yes, I don't look as good as I used to look, but I can understand that I wasn't being kind to myself the way that I was, you know, training my body previously. So for me, success now is really just about contentment um, and being stimulated by my life. And that means being stimulated mentally and by the people around me, just feeling like a part of something that I have a greater purpose in this world. So yeah, I don't think I have a clear definition of success and I know what my definition of success is not. And that is that it is no longer focused on things outside of me um, because coming home to myself has been a revolutionary journey um, in softening into just being happy with who I am. I absolutely love that. What perfect note to end on. And I have no doubt whatsoever that anybody who's listened to this will be dying to go listen to your podcast if they haven't already. So can you just tell us where everyone can find you to hear more? Yes. Like I said, hopefully my dad's not listening. Um, But to everyone else, (laughs) you can find me uh, on the Open House podcast with Louise Rumble on Apple and Spotify. And my Instagram is I am. I am Louise Rumble.